Um, good evening, everyone. Uh, today I'm going to um, take you through the last chapter, that's chapter 5. And, um, uh, you know, yesterday I uh, already talked about how uh, the sentence um, in, in Mersault's case has been pronounced. He's going to be decapitated in a public square, um, you know, in front of, uh, you know, the French public. Uh, so, um, in a sense, he's been made out to be a, a sort of um, uh, villainous character who is um, actually, um, you know, committing a crime which is a crime against society. Um, this whole uh, chapter, chapter uh, four, it brought out a certain uh, kind of um, anxiety in Mayor Salt because he feels that he's being more and more excluded uh, from his own uh, life and the you know the scheme of his own life, and um, he has this feeling that uh, you know his opinion is not important. He's not being counted at all, and. Uh, when he hears, uh, you know, the uh, sentence, he's very, very uh, surprised. So, uh, in this last chapter, obviously, we're going to see a culmination of uh, everything that has happened in the book. Um, this chapter is um, significant uh, because we're going to see, uh, you know, uh, how uh, he embraces, uh, you know, uh, death as the only finality and as the only, uh, you know, true meaning uh, of a meaningless l existence, right? Uh, so, you know, we'd be able to see how he understands the truth uh, very unlike other people who don't. And he says that, no, it's okay whether you die today or you die 30 years from now. Death is the most inevitable. And Mirsalt has always refused to do things which everybody else is doing. Remember, he doesn't play the game. He refuses to lie. And um, I also talked about, you know, this reference to the parasite again and again. That, you know, there's another case along with Mirsalt's case, and that's the case of the parasite. That's the murder, you know, a son merging his own father. And, uh, you know, symbolically and metaphorically, Mirsalt's case also falls under the same category now because he's actually not being charged so much for murder of the Arabs but it's almost like him being charged for the murder of his mother so his is almost like a case of matricide you know, and you know throwing his mother into an old age home and not meeting her while she was there and then not crying the funeral and you know, not paying respects at his mother's grave once she was buried so all this comes to a point where you know Mary Salt is almost you know symbolically accused of matricide. Uh, in this last chapter, obviously we're going to see um, you know, Mersault's embracing of death, uh, although right in the beginning he keeps thinking of you know, the failure of the mechanism, you know, the guillotine should fail, and uh, you know, he should be able to be saved, and all these absurd ideas come into his mind, uh, his appeal coming through, and, uh, you know, after all that, he thinks that, no, I mean, I shouldn't uh, really think of all that because the only inevitable thing in life is actually death. And we see a very strong, a very brave Mayor Salt. Uh, you know, by the time I come to the end of the book, uh, and, uh, I mean, I've been doing uh, it for so many years and teaching it for so many years, 
But every time I come to the end or to chapter 5, uh, I'm filled with a sense of sorrow. Uh, I feel uh, sad for Merthold. And um, I, I understand what Camus, uh, uh, you know, intended. That the readers should uh, perceive Merthold in a certain manner. And uh, when we see him embracing death, and remember in, the, in chapter 4 you also said that, you know, when I looked around in the court and I, I found that, you know, everybody hated me. And he says, I never committed that kind of a crime which actually, uh, you know, should have, uh, you know, sort of spurned people to hate me. But he says, yes, everybody hated me. And we do understand from, you know, whatever we've read about him in part one, he wasn't a man who was, um, you know, an anti-social in that sense. He was thoughtful of others. He, he uh, you know, loved Salamano. He loved Marie. He was good to Celeste. He was nice to Raymond Sintes. He was good to Emmanuel. Uh, and uh, he, he, the only thing that he couldn't do was, uh, you know, pretend. And uh, and he never pretended throughout the entire novel. Okay. Uh, we're also going to see, uh, you know, the role of religion. Uh, remember, we already saw how the magistrate tried to convert him by showing him the crucifix. And religion actually you know, more than just, uh, you know, belief in Christ, uh, religion is also symbolic of something which uh, offers you meaning. Uh, you know, that's essentially what religion tries to do. It tries to ground an individual in a certain belief system, in uh, in certain, uh, in, in, you know, a certain incarnation or a god. And uh, what it tries to do is actually it, makes you believe that life has a meaning and what's that meaning it's you know uh, salvation and uh, you know getting onto that path of liberation uh, you know as we would call it attainment of moksha so um, you know even Mersault actually rejects a religion he's not rejecting so much just Jesus Christ or uh, the whole institution of the church he's actually rejecting an attempt at forcing him to find a meaning in life through religion you know so that becomes also very significant and we're going to see that he refuses to meet the chap uh, the chaplain for the third time right so um, I begin like I always do uh, by reading um, the opening lines of the chapter for the third time I've refused to see the chaplain uh, I'm the chaplain of the priest I've got nothing to say to him I don't feel like talking and I'll be seeing him soon enough as it is. Right? So he doesn't want to talk. And uh, this entire chapter is one of complete contemplation. You know, looking inward, analyzing the self. Um, although, of course, there is also an understanding of the external environment. But understanding the self is, is very significant here. What interests me at the moment is trying to escape from the mechanism trying to find if there's any way out of the inevitable you know and uh, this is actually quite absurd uh, you know trying to find out ways or think about how the mechanism wouldn't work you know the guillotine which is you know the mechanism by which his head is going to be chopped off in a public square uh, I mean how uh, can one think that it doesn't work but probably it's only a man or a woman who has been awarded the capital punishment who probably could think of that. We as readers probably would find it very absurd. 
you know because um, you know all these mechanisms are handled and are controlled by the state you know so whether it's the electric chair or the hangman's noose or the or the guillotine i mean you know we always hear of uh, you know 100% success rates i mean we we've, we've never heard of stories in which you know the hangman's noose failed or the electric chair didn't work or or you know the guillotine somehow didn't work but probably a dying man or a dying woman would have these kind of thoughts okay and um when uh, you know mere soul is actually thinking about uh, you know the guillotine being uh, you know snapping or it just being unsuccessful it is an acceptance actually of uh, the inevitability of death and this chapter is actually mere soul's attempt at embracing a death which other people are not understanding that's why he says what difference does it make whether you die today or you die uh, you know say 30 years later okay so um from where he was lying he could only see the sky and nothing else you know and what did he do he spent all day watching the complexion of the sky darken as day returns to night okay and what does he do is he only waits yes remember a very uh, central pivotal aspect of the um, you know philosophy of the absurd is is waiting and waiting for what waiting for something to happen and that waiting is generally a very futile kind of a wait so he says i don't know how many times i've wondered whether they have ever been instances of condemned prisoners escaping from the implacable machinery disappearing before the execution or breaking through the police cordon okay so all kinds of weird thoughts come into his mind of uh, you know people who are to be executed who just run out of the police cordon or they just um, you know escape from uh, the machinery he uses the word implacable uh, you know which which actually says that it, it it you know it just can't be escaped but he's just imagining all these those things you know and see there's a very uh, funny thing that he says also he said i'd reproach myself he said i scolded myself every time because i never paid enough attention to stories of ex- executions you know and he says you should always take an interest in these things so that's a very funny and a very ironical statement that you should read more about executions you know as though you're supposed to read about uh, you know stories of uh, you know morality and self improvement so you must read about executions because you could be executed one day yes a very typical mere thought very um, you know funny and in the face that he can be even when he's about to be executed he's thinking about uh, you know scolding himself for not having paid much attention to stories of executions yeah so um he says maybe there must have been special books which i didn't read and you know then i could have uh, paid much more attention to how to escape from the guillotine all right um then you know he keeps thinking of all these things and um uh, Uh, he says you know the paper um, then he talks about you know reports about uh, uh, what was being reported in the papers he says the papers often talked about a debt being owed to society according to them it had to be paid but that hardly appeals to the imagination yes he says what kind of a debt am i supposed to pay back to society yes uh, what have i done that i have to sort of repay it right and uh, he says that the most vital thing 
was that there should be chance of escaping of breaking out you know and of making a you know a mad kind of a rush where uh, i would be able to be uh, you know i would be able to escape okay uh, naturally he says that hope was of being shot down at a street corner in full flight and by a bullet from nowhere right so he says that even if i thought of escaping i'd be shot obviously by the police right then um, he says you know but when i really thought about it there was nothing to permit me such a luxury everything was set against it and i was caught in the mechanism again so here you know uh, we see how he's being trapped you know if he thinks or he imagines that he's running out on the streets and running away from the police he's shot and uh, if he's not shot he says see then i have to come back again to the mechanism right so he sort of comes back to this whole idea that he has to uh, you know be uh, decapitated right and uh, then he um, you know uh, keeps uh, thinking about this whole um, idea about uh, you know how the uh, mechanism you know might just fail or something right and uh, he also said you know and yet i had to admit that from the very second it was taken its consequences became just as certain just as serious as the fact that i was lying there flat against the wall right so whenever he uh, you know thought of the absolute certainty of the mechanism working he became more and more certain you know and more and more serious that uh, you know there was just no escape and uh, death was the only inevitable thing for him um so he says at times uh, like this uh, you know he remembered um a story uh, that his mother used to tell him about his father and uh, as i told you that there are you know some autobiographical elements in this uh, mirsault's uh, you know father died when he was a very little child he had no memories in fact of his father and uh, his uh, he only used to remember the story that his mother told him that you know once his father had gone out uh, to the street to see a public execution and when he came back he was very sick he vomited and he found the whole execution very disgusting so uh, probably um, you know that story that he heard uh you know played on his mind and he says you know i recall a story that my mother told me so this is exactly uh, what had happened uh, to him when he when he was um, when he was a child uh, himself right so he says um, uh, you know perhaps the only thing that i knew about the man was the story the mother used to tell me uh who was his father okay see so he you refers to him as a man as a man because he never really knew him okay uh his father had gone to watch a murderer being executed he felt ill at the thought of going but he still went and he says you know my father disgusted me a bit at that time you know why did he have to go for a public execution but he says you know now i understand it was completely natural and i don't know how i hadn't realized that nothing was more important than executions you know and in fact that was the only thing which could be actually um, you know it's really interesting okay so he said that if i ever got out of prison look at the look at the sentence here he says if i ever got out of prison i'd go and watch all the executions there were but he think said but i think i was wrong even to consider the possibility yeah? so he says uh, otherwise you know for his knowledge etc he should go and watch all the executions okay now uh, once you know when his father returned uh his father had really become uh, very 
sick you know he had vomited all day and he was very ill all the time okay and uh, he says that you know i think uh, it, it's terrible you know to actually watch a public execution and the fact is that you know there are so many people who really used to go and watch watch it you know that itself speaks of a certain kind of a uh, you know psychology of a people who took such kind of a uh, you know pleasure in going and watching uh, these public executions so he says he remembered that the only thing that you know was uh, um, uh, you know um, you know in his memory about his father was the fact that he had gone to see an execution okay uh, then he said you know it was um, he kept thinking about uh, the fact that you know he would be able to escape you know or you know running out of the cordon and then uh, you know but then he says you know naturally you can't always be rational you know and uh, he realized that the essential thing was to give the condemned man a chance you know and he keeps saying that no the condemned man must be given a chance um and uh, this is also uh, it's sort of um, autobiographical in a sense that you know um albert camus fought for uh, the un- abolition of uh, capital punishment and of course um, he uh, didn't s- didn't live to see the abolition but uh, you know by the time he he died there were many uh, countries uh, in and around europe who had uh, which had uh, you know abolished capital punishment okay then uh, he also s- in, you know imagined you know that they could find some chemical you know compound for the patient to take he said you know i referred to the uh, prisoner as a patient okay which would kill him nine times out of ten he would then know that this you know that that was the condition okay because when i uh, really thought about it and considered things calmly i could see that what was wrong with the guillotine was that you had no chance at all absolutely none so he says you know the guillotine had you know 100% chances of uh, success whereas if it was a chemical uh, you know given or something it could be 9 out of 10 you could escape you know if it was being shot uh, you could run away from the police cordon but he says the guillotine has uh, you know 100% success okay so he's thinking of all these uh, strange things and um, you know he says that it's very sad that the condemned man has to hope that the you know the machine would fail or something he says otherwise you just have uh, no hope at all okay then uh, you know he keeps thinking of this and then he says you know the he he had um, seen pictures of the guillotine and uh, he never imagined that you know that the guillotine that he was going to be on was different from what he'd imagined he says that the machine in the picture had struck me because it looked so immaculate and gleaming like a precision instrument so he's seen pictures of it uh, <coughs> although you know um, there is a step that you have to climb he imagines all kinds of things about it and he tries to you know sort of join his imagination and reality okay uh, he says you always get exaggerated ideas of things you know nothing about okay so he says he got all strange ideas about Uh, you know the guillotine he said i was un uh, he says i was made to realize that on the contrary everything was quite simple you know and uh, the machine you know uh, everything was quite simple because he says the machine was actually on the same level as the man and he said i always imagined i always thought that you know what you had to climb one step or two to be able to get up to that machine okay so um, then you know he ends this uh, this paragraph by saying 
whereas once again the mechanism demolished everything. They killed you discreetly and rather shamefacedly, but extremely accurately. So he says, you know, uh, these machines are almost like precision machines. They kill you, uh, you know, uh, discreetly and shamefacedly, but they kill you very accurately. So he says, no, I, there's no hope for me uh, to be able to escape from the guillotine. Right? Then uh, he was always thinking about, you know, the dawn. Uh, you know, which is the day that he's going to be executed and his appeal, right? So he kept thinking that, you know, whenever there was any sound of any step, he thought it was, you know, somebody coming to tell him that your, you know, uh, you know your appeal uh, it has come through, etc. And he says, you know, the beating of his heart, you know, became so uh, pronounced that he could feel it in his head, right? And uh, either the dawn or my appeal would still be there. And I, I, you know, end up telling myself that the most rational thing was not to hold myself back. So he says, see, there are going to be two things, and slowly we're seeing, uh, you know, what is Mesol doing? He is, uh, you know, sort of uh, accepting the, you know, the inevitability of death. Okay. Uh, so they came at dawn. He says, I knew that. In fact, I spent every night just waiting for the dawn to come. I never liked being surprised. It's so typical Mesol. Yeah. Um, he says, when something's happen happening to me, I'd rather be around, yes? So much like the outsider uh, uh, and like the naive hero. He says, when something's happening to me, I really want to be involved, you know? That, you know, <coughs> excuse me, when I'm executed, I want to know about it, okay? So um, that's when he ended up sleeping only for a bit during the day. He kept waiting, either it's going to be the appeal or it's going to be the you know, <coughs> the men uh, coming to take him uh, for his, his execution, okay? And he says, once it was past midnight, I would be waiting, listening. Never before had my ears picked up so many noises or detected such tiny sounds. I must say, um, you know, I must say though, that in a way I was lucky throughout that period in that I never once heard footsteps, you know? So he becomes very, very sharply perceptive to any kind of sound anything and uh, you know he he is happy that he didn't hear anybody coming and he uh, you know thinks off and on of his mother mother often used to say that you're never altogether unhappy you know a very significant thing because he always keeps saying you know i was never unhappy in my life yes i might have had a certain kind of a boredom a certain kind of a mechanical existence but that doesn't mean i was unhappy and she used to say that you're never altogether unhappy. And lying there in my prison, when the sky turned red and a new day slid into my cell, I'd agree with her. Because I could just as easily have heard footsteps and my heart would have burst. So, you know, he wants to just live one more day at a time. For even though the faintest rustle would send me flying to the door, and even though with my ear pressed to the world, I'll wait there frantically until I could hear my own breathing and be terrified to find it so hoarse like a dog's death rattle. My heart wouldn't burst after all and I'd have gained another 24 hours. So he's counting you know, one day at a time and uh, he just doesn't want to hear those footsteps. He still wants to give him some chance to live. You know? So he says all through the day there was my appeal I think I made the most of the idea, you know, and um, so he 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 obviously understands that uh, he would be able to, you know, not escape at all. 
He says, well then, I'll die. Sooner than other people, obviously. But everybody knows that life isn't worth living, you know. So, you know, this is for the first time we hear or we see Mesod saying it in such, you know, point-blank words. He says, life isn't worth living, everybody knows. There's no meaning and everybody has to die one day. And so he says, you know, uh, and when it came down to that, he says, you know, what does it matter very much whether you die at 30 or at 70 since, in either case, other men and women will naturally go on living for thousands of years even, you know. So he says, you know, it's, it's, it's inevitable. Yes, nobody's going to live forever, so, uh, you know, it doesn't make any difference at all. Nothing was plainer, in fact, it was still only me who was dying. Yes, although he says that everybody is alive while I'm dying, but yes, the inevitability of the fact is that everybody is going to die. Whether it's now, uh, it was, uh, sorry, it was still only me who was dying, whether it was now or in 20 years' time, right? So he now starts pondering on the inevitability of death, right? So he says, I'd have to face the same situation anyway. If I don't die today, I'll die tomorrow. Uh, given that you've got to die, it obviously doesn't matter exactly how or when. So he says, you know, what difference does it make? And he, uh, you know, very calmly accepts the fact that he is, you know, going to die. No? Uh, then at that point, and only at that point, I'd, as it were, have the right, uh, I'd, so to speak, give myself permission to consider the alternative hypothesis. I have was pardoned. So he says, okay, there are only two things, remember, he thinks about. One is the dawn, and the second is the appeal. So he says, now, okay, what happens if I'm pardoned, you know? Uh, the annoying thing was that somehow I'd have to control that rush of blood, you know, which would be make which would make me delirious with joy. He says I wouldn't be able to control that, and that would be very annoying. So you see how Mersault uh, thinks of something which would be very, very, uh, you know, important in his life, and he says, no, I, I don't think I'd be able to take the happiness, uh, you know, of that kind of news, right? So uh, now another, uh, you know, incident which takes place is when refused to see the chaplain yet again remember he refused the chaplain three times now he's refusing him for the last time and why is the chaplain being sent to him you know so that he could be redeemed you know because um, he's about to die yes remember even the magistrate had shown him the crucifix and said that you know if you've committed a sin you must go back to the arms of Jesus okay uh, he you know did not want to see him he says for the first time in ages uh, you know, I thought of Marie, and that's why he didn't want to see the chaplain. His mind was full of all kinds of thoughts, and he said, "You know, Marie hadn't written me, uh, written to me for days on end." And uh, that evening, I thought it over, and I told myself, "You know, she'd probably got tired of being a condemned man's mistress." You know, uh, very significant about how the world wants you to play the game, and maybe Marie wanted to be, uh, you know, the girlfriend of Mirso, but everybody must have told her that you know you're a condemned man's mistress. It also crossed his mind that she might have been ill or she might have died, you know. It was in the natural order of things and how would I have known when, now that we were physically separated, there was nothing left to keep us together or to remind us of each other, you know. So he, remember we always talked about him, you know, understanding Marie through her body. So he says, you know, her body is not there, physically she's not there, how do I know whether she's ill or whether she's dead? And, you know, actually that's a very natural way to be able to understand yes uh, we often get into uh, you know the, the philosophical aspect of you know 
the heart grows fonder when you're away from somebody etc but Mirsol doesn't believe in all that yeah? so he says uh, so you know anyway from that point Marie's memory would have meant nothing to me you know he says I wasn't interested in her anymore you know as if you know it was almost like she was dead and he says I found it quite natural I found it quite normal as I could quite understand that people would forget about me once I was dead so he says what's the big deal I would be dead and people would forget about me they had nothing more to do with me I couldn't even say that this was hard to accept so he says I think I've been able to accept it and accept the fact that you know uh, I'll be just a statistic tomorrow and if Marie's dead and you know in fact he even thinks that probably Marie's married to somebody else and maybe uh, you know she's uh, Raymond Sinti's giving her kisses instead of uh, in, in instead of my salt you know so it's at this point that the chaplain walked in he was very irritated he did not want to meet him and he was still he sat down and he invited me to sit next to him I refused all the same I found him quite pleasant so maybe he was feeling lonely but uh, you know he sat there for a moment and then uh, you know he started talking to him you know and uh, he asked him you know why did you refuse to see me he said and he uh, you know Marisol says I don't believe in God he wanted to know whether I was quite sure and whether I had no reason for asking myself this question it didn't seem to matter then almost as if he were talking to himself he remarked that sometimes you think you're sure when you're really not Mirsol didn't say anything you know and uh, he kept asking him what do you think um, he says yeah maybe it's possible but in any case I may not have been sure what really interested me he says you know uh, but he says I do know what doesn't interest me and God doesn't interest me at all okay um, and then you know what he was talking about was uh, one of the things that interest him that's God okay so he looked away but then you know he kept uh, you know trying to talk to him etc and uh, you know he says God would help you uh, you know every man that I've known in your position has turned towards him and uh, you know he addressed him as his friend and uh, he says we are all condemned uh, you know to die and he says uh, you know but if you don't die now you die later and the same problem arise so how are you going to face up that ordeal so he says it doesn't matter yes I'm, I'm ready to die and I, I don't really uh, you know I don't re really care and you know he he's very very angry with him and the chaplain says he pities him etc okay then uh, you know he says that uh, he was quite certain that his appeal would be allowed but he was you know that Mersot was burdened with sin uh, from which he had to free himself you know and uh, he you know he says I I'm, I'm simply being told that I was guilty I was guilty and I was praying you know for it and there was nothing more that could be asked for so there's guilt there's God there's forgiveness and uh, you know he he's very irritated with him in fact he gets so angry with him he says you know you're mistaken there's more that could be asked of you and uh, you know he talks about all these philosophical religious spiritual things and he is now reaching the point of real anger the priest looked all around him and reply replied in a voice which was suddenly sounded very tired you know weary right and then he says uh, you know you should actually look around and probably you will see the face of Jesus so he says no I, I can't see anybody's face here it doesn't 
you know, it, it can't be, you know, visible to me, yes? And he says that probably if he could see anything in the prison, it would be the, you know, face of Marie, and the face of Marie was actually the face of desire, right? Then uh, he kept talking about, uh, kept talking to him of religion, kept insisting on all these things, okay? And then he shouted at him, okay? Uh, you know, have you imagined any other life? And Mirsod shouts at him, he says, one which would remind me of this life. And in the same breath, I told him that I had enough. He started talking to me about God again, but I went up to him and made one last attempt. Okay, And he says, you know, I'm your father. And it irritated him. He says, I'm, you know, you're not my father. Then he keeps calling him his son. And then he says, I'm not, I don't call me such things, you know. And he started Mersold and starts shouting at the top of his voice. We see Mersold getting angry for the first time. He shakes him, you know. Uh, he grabs him by his collar of his cassock. The cassock is the gown which, uh, you know, the dress which a priest wears. And he was frightened to death, you know. And, uh, you know, he started shouting. People came and, you know, they separated both of them. And he was like so very angry. And you know, before that, now you know, there, there's a very um, significant passage. Uh, he, you know, Mersol, this is what he thinks about uh, the chaplain. He says, uh, you know, the chaplain couldn't even be sure he was alive because he was living like a dead man. I might seem to be empty handed, but I was quite sure of myself, sure of everything, surer than he was sure of my life and sure of my death that was coming to me so he says i'm really pretty sure about everything yes that was all i had but at least it was a truth which i had told of just as it had ho uh, sorry it's a truth which i had hold of just as it had hold of me i'd been right i was still right i was always right i lived a certain way and i could just as well have lived in a different way i'd done this and i hadn't done that I hadn't done one thing, whereas I'd done another. So what? It was as if I'd been waiting all along for this very moment and for the early dawn when I'd be justified. Nothing, nothing mattered, and I knew very well why. He too knew why, from the depths of my future, throughout the whole of this absurd life I'd been leading, I felt a vague breath drifting towards me across all the years that were still to come, and on its way, this breath had evened out everything that was then being proposed to me in the equally unreal years I was living through. What did other people's deaths or a mother's love matter to me? What did this God or the lives people chose or the destinies they selected matter to me when one and the same destiny was to select me and thousands of millions of other privileged people who, like me, call themselves my brothers? didn't he understand okay, so a very philosophical passage and for the first time the use of the word absurd life is uh, brought into focus so he says this wor world is absurd but i've always lived with certainty certain in what i did certain in what i uh, know certain in what i uh, understood and he says you know the chaplain is just living like a dead man so he says this is an inevitability everybody's going to face it everybody's privileged everybody's the same because uh, they were only privileged people. Uh, today they're privileged, but tomorrow they would be condemned to death. Okay? So he says, what did it matter if he was accused of murder and then executed for not crimes at mother's funeral? Yes, very significant. This, you know, the closing of the chapter, very significant. All the philosophical truths sort of coming together 
and uh, you know uh, making a sort of strong statement about the inevitability of death and how Mir Sultan is the only man who is strong to be able to accept what his uh, life is giving him which is actually death okay so he says you know Salamano's dog would was worth just as much as his wife you know so what is the difference there the little automatic woman was just as guilty as the Parisian woman Masaw had married or as Marie who had wanted to marry me. What did it matter that Raymond was just as much my mate as Celeste who was worth more than him? What did it matter that Marie now had a new sword to kiss? Didn't he understand that he was condemned and that from the depths of my future I was choking with all this shouting. You know, this is what he was saying, thinking and he was shaking the chaplain. People had to come and separate them and you know, he, he was surprised that he behaved in such a manner. No? And then, uh, now, uh, coming to the last paragraph, uh, once he was gone, I felt calm again. I was exhausted and I threw myself onto my bunk. I think I must have fallen asleep because I woke up with stars shining on my face. Sounds of the countryside were wafting in. Just remember, Mersault, uh, very closely connected to nature very closely connected to uh, you know tiny sounds and sights which you can see which you can understand uh, you know the night air was cooling my temples temples by his forehead with the smell of earth and salt the wondrous peace of the sleeping summer flooded into me now he becomes very calm and he accepts um, the inevitability of his death at that point on the verge of daybreak there was a scream of sirens so this quiet is broken by the sound of sirens. They were announcing a departure to a world towards which I would now be forever indifferent. It's a beautiful, one of the most beautiful lines of the novel. He says, you know, they're announcing a certain kind of departure to a world uh, of which I would be indifferent. For the first time in a very long time, I thought of mother. I felt that I understood why at the end of her life she'd taken a fiancé and why she'd pretended to start again. Yes, pretended. All a part of the absurdity and the meaninglessness of life. There at the home where lives faded away, there too the evenings were a kind of melancholy truce. Yes, a truce is, you know, when uh, warring parties stop fighting and they make a peace, you know. So he says she was also looking for a kind of a sad melancholy, a sad kind of a peace. So close to death, mother must have felt liberated and ready to live her life again. So you know, see, he is also experiencing the same thing. That he's so close to his execution and he wants to live again. He wants to think of all those memories of his life. And yet, he has a deep understanding that death is something that's inevitable. No one, no one at all had any right to cry over her. And I too felt ready to live my life again and as if this great outburst of anger had purged all my ills killed all my hopes i looked up at the mass of signs and stars on the night sky and i laid myself open for the first time to the benign indifference of the world he looks at the sky and the stars seem to be looking down at him and he sort of surrenders to the benign indifference Yes, look at the two words, benign, indifference, you know, otherwise benign here is kind and indifference is obviously the world being 
you know, not concerned, etc. And he says, I left myself as though openly surrendered to the benign indifference of the world. And he says, you know, just like nobody had a right to cry over my mother's funeral because she had lived again, she had uh, tried to make a certain kind of peace. He says, even I've made that kind of peace. And uh, nobody should, uh, you know, uh, you know, be regretful about my death. Okay, and finding it so much like myself, in fact, so fraternal. You know, fraternal is when you talk about something which <coughs> has a certain kind of a brotherhood together. He says, I realize that I'd been happy, and that I was still happy. Yeah. So, you know, mere salt, um, admitting that he was happy, and he was still happy even at this point. And see the last lines of the novel, very um, significant and a very strong, um, a very brave kind of an acceptance of his death uh, in a public square, watched by the French people, and you know his head in that guillotine. And he says, for the final consummation, and for me to feel less lonely, my last wish was that there should be a crowd of spectators at my execution, and that they should greet me with cries of victory. You know? So there's pathos there's an irony uh, and there is also a strong kind of acceptance that you know he says yes let everybody come and cry out uh, you know uh, you know shouts of hatred because uh, he understands that uh, you know everybody uh, who's going to come to that uh, execution is is essentially uh, you know so so irrational they don't understand really what's happening and what Michaud's done that he says that let everybody come it doesn't matter I've accepted my, uh, uh, I, I've accepted in complete, uh, you know, in uncertain terms my death, and that's how it's going to be. Okay. So, uh, uh, you know, um, you know, this is the end of the novel, and uh, a very significant end. And I, I think as readers, uh, we almost sort of, uh, uh, I mean, tend to, you know, fall in love with the character of Mesolt. Some of us would fall in love. Some of us would say that you know he's an out-and-out reject, uh, a person who doesn't deserve any sympathy because uh, he he was so hard-hearted, you know, he was so unkind. But yet we understand that Mesold is probably the only one who understands everything. He doesn't play the game, and um, this is how he, you know, behaves. Okay. Now, um, since we've we're through with the novel, uh, and I'd uh, you know. Already given you the questions um, for discussions, etc. Um, I've already, uh, you know, given you, um, uh, you know, material on, uh, you know, the philosophy of the third and how, uh, you know, he behaves in that way. And uh, you know, along the entire uh, explanations of all the chapters, I've focused my attention on, uh, you know, all the apparent and the symbolic ideas that are in this novel. So uh, I'd end with the afterward which um, you know Albert Camus uh, talks about you know how his character was received because you know you know obviously uh, he he was quite a blasphemous character in that way but he says let, let me give you a little justification I'd already referred to the afterward but I just w just want to read it through uh, so that you understand what uh, Camus really uh, and how really Camus wanted his character to be a long time ago, I summed up the outsider in a sentence which I realize is extremely paradoxical. In our society, any man who doesn't cry at his mother's funeral is liable to be condemned to death. 
I simply meant that the hero of the book is condemned because he doesn't play the game. In the sense he is an outsider to the society in which he lives, wandering on the fringe, on the outskirts of life, solitary and sensual. And for that reason some readers have been tempted to regard him as a reject. But to get a more accurate picture of his character, or rather one which conforms more closely to his author's intentions, you must ask yourself in what way Mirsor doesn't play the game. The answer is simple, he refuses to lie. Lying is not only saying what isn't true, it is also in fact especially saying more than is true and in the case of the human heart saying more than one feels. So he says, you know, um, essentially lying is just not saying, uh, you know, what isn't true. It's saying something beyond what you feel. And he says that itself is I is really uh, is some kind of a very, uh, you know, uh, tragic kind of a mistake. He says we all do it every day to make life simpler. But contrary to appearances, Mirsol doesn't want to make life simpler. He says what he is. He refuses to hide his feelings and society immediately feels threatened. So whenever Mirsort, you know, tells the truth and truth is always blatant, society immediately feels threatened. For example, he is asked to say that he regrets this crime in time-honoured fashion. He replies that he feels more annoyance about it than true regret. And it is this nuance that condemns him. You know, so he cannot do what everybody is doing. He, he will not say anything to save himself, and that's when the world feels threatened. So for me, Mary Salt is not a reject, but a poor and naked man in love with a sun which leaves no shadows. Yes, a very a beautiful line. He's in love with a sun that has no shadows. Yes, and that's why we say that, you know, Mary Salt is a man who cannot read between the lines. He can just see what's, um, or he can just state what he thinks, what he feels, without beating around the bush. And, you know, and when we beat around the bush, we're essentially lying. Uh, he says, you know, far from lacking all sensibility, he's driven by a tenacious and therefore profound passion, the passion for an absolute and for truth. So he says there is a strong kind of, you know, passion that he has. And what's that passion? The passion is for truth. This truth is as yet a negative one, a truth born of living and feeling, but without which no triumph over the self or over the world will ever be possible. So Albert Camus ultimately saying that yes, truth is what you know uh, symbolizes or represents Mirasold, and truth is actually what uh, the whole world requires. So one wouldn't be far wrong in seeing the outsider as the story of a man who without any heroic pretensions, yes, remember in my first lecture I referred to him also as an anti-hero. See, he doesn't have any heroic pretensions. He doesn't pretend to be like a hero, agrees to die for the truth. I also once said, and again paradoxically, that I tried to make my character represent the only Christ that we deserve. So um, it was, of course, very blasphemous because comparing mere salt with Christ was um, like comparing chalk and cheese. And he says, you know, uh, one has to understand the spirit in which I said that. So he says, um, you know, it will be understood after uh, these explanations that
that I said it without any intention of blasphemy, but simply with the somewhat ironic affection that an artist has a right to feel towards the characters he has created. So he says, if I said that he was a Christ that you deserve, it was because he died for the truth. And like Jesus is believed to have died for the truth, died for the sins of his people, so also Mirso dies because he tells the truth. He refuses to say that he you know, regrets his crime or that you know, he uh, you know, didn't kill the Arab or you know, he refuses to tell all those kind of stories that his lawyer teaches him to. So he says, my you know, character, if I said that he was the only Christ, allow me some kind of leverage to actually be able to uh, have uh, you know, the right to love my character. Uh, because um, I think I deserve you know, every bit of that love and affection uh, to show towards my character. Uh, so my students, I hope you, um, you know, listen to all the previous podcasts and you listen to this. And then, uh, uh, you know, uh, we'll be able to have uh, discussions together. And I hope you've enjoyed the, this, this novel because it's um, unusual. It's um, layered. It, it, it's got a lot of, uh, you know, things to explain and understand. And more importantly, probably, you have to absorb uh, this novel. You know, you have to sort of uh, understand it uh, from Mirso's perspective and also from uh, various perspectives of your own. And when you go into it deeply, probably you'll really be able to understand that th there are so many things which are meaningless. There are so many things which are absolutely purposeless. There are so many things which are so absurd. But we have to go through uh, that entire uh, sort of, uh, uh, you know, routine and that procedure because you know it makes life simple so i mean i hope you enjoyed this and understood every facet and uh, i'm sure if you uh, listen to the podcast very carefully uh, you'll be able to be really uh, you know well prepared to be able to tackle any kind of question uh, and uh, understand uh, you know all the nuances all the little uh, you know uh, very small uh, but very very significant turns you know in the novel yeah. I think that's what um, I mean I would really like you to be able to take out from these podcasts so um, all the best to you and thank you